I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by one of today's in-demand conductors, Joshua Weilerstein, to talk about Maurice Ravel's Bolero. Weilerstein has conducted orchestras like the San Francisco Symphony, the Philadelphia Orchestra, and the London Philharmonic, among many others, in addition to his years as assistant conductor of the New York Philharmonic and music director of the Lausanne Chamber Orchestra. He's also the host of the well-known classical music podcast called Sticky Notes. So, who better to talk to about one of music's most intriguing works, Bolero? Thank you so much for joining me, Josh. It has been quite a while, hasn't it, since you and I have even played together. I'm wondering, where has the time even gone? Yeah, it's been a very long time. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I was just trying to think when... The last time we probably would have played something together at NEC 10, 12 years ago. Yes, I think actually I was reminded by looking at our Facebook messages. I believe it was a Stravinsky piece you were conducting for a recital. Oh, right. Right of yeah. Spring for um, a reduced orchestra, I think it was. <laughs> An extremely reduced orchestra. Yes. Yeah, I think in the former St. Patolf Hall, we, we, we bashed through that Rite of Spring. I remember that. I remember. You know, it was a lot of fun playing both yeah. parts on one instrument. But thank you so much for <laughs> joining me. And we're here to talk about Ravel's Bolero. Now, I really love this piece, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I assume and I hope that you do like it. But what do you love about this piece? It, you know, it's funny because it's a piece that your listeners might not know is, is a little controversial among orchestra players and among conductors. Um, a lot of people don't like it very much. They think it's too repetitive. And I mean, Ravel would have counted himself as one of those people. Um, I think Ravel was always really offended that this was his most popular piece because he didn't think there was much to it. But I just, I love it so much. And it, I mean, it definitely depends a little bit on the performance. Um, if the performance is sort of committed and has, you know, there's a sort of love for it on stage... I think it can be a live concert experience like nothing else. Like the buildup is so incredible. And then when at the end, very end where the key changes for the first time in about 15 minutes or 14 minutes, depending on what your tempo is, it's just, it's like the earth, the roof is literally raised off the building. It's just, it, it, it can, it's a really ecstatic experience to hear a great performance of this piece. And I love that you've said experience a couple of times describing the performance of it because it feels like that is a part of performance art if I can say that in itself where you you push this one little domino and you know you are on one trajectory for the next 15 or so minutes and it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger until the very end for me I love that I mean Ravel is one of my favorite composers and I love the colors and timbre he brings Mm -hmm. when we've been playing and performing all our lives when you can hear something that makes you stop and say wait a second, what instrument is that? You know, what's happening here? It's always magical when you get that experience. Yeah, and he takes what is essentially just a regular old orchestra and creates something that, you know, you don't think a theme repeated, I think, nine times one theme and nine times the other theme can be that interesting. And, you know, again, for some people, it's not that interesting. But, you know, for me, there's a a passage where he puts the piccolos, um, two piccolos and a horn and a celeste, this sort of tinkly keyboard instrument together. And it it sounds, as you just said, it sounds like otherworldly. It sounds like an organ is suddenly on the stage, uh, especially if the balance is, you know, exactly right. And that, that just takes you a little bit out of the hall and back in again. And it's just, again, it's that inexorable, inevitable buildup that makes this piece so exciting. 
And that actually is one of my favorite moments in the music, especially early on, and we'll get to that. And looking at what Ravel, what Ravel said, because you kind of alluded to it as well as to his feelings to the piece, here is what Ravel said about Bolero. He said, I am particularly anxious that there should be no misunderstanding as to my Bolero. It is an experiment in a very special and limited direction, and it should not be suspected of aiming at achieving anything different from or anything more than it actually does achieve. Before the first performance, I issued a warning to the effect that what I had written was a piece consisting wholly of orchestral texture without music, of one long, very gradual crescendo. There are no contrasts, and there is practically no invention except in the plan and the manner of the execution. The themes are impersonal, folk tunes of the usual Spanish-Arabian kind. Whatever may have been said to the contrary, the orchestral treatment is simple and straightforward throughout, without the slightest attempt at virtuosity. I have done exactly what I have set out to do, and it is for listeners to take it or leave it. That is such an interesting thing to hear from a composer about their own piece. Yeah, and I'll take it. You know, it's it's like, I think... It's interesting to hear someone like Ravel, who is known so much as, you know, this composer who worked with color so much. And if you compare him to the person who he's always compared with, Debussy, Debussy was sort of the wild man. Like he was always in these scandals in French society. And he always was, he was a very kind of disorganized writer in some ways, disorganized composer. And he would always be changing things. And Ravel, I think Stravinsky called him the Swiss watchmaker of composers. Everything had to be in its place and everything was exactly right. And he could create these amazing colors with real precision. And I think my impression is that Ravel just felt that a lot of that work hadn't gone into this piece. And so he was, again, kind of offended that people considered it so brilliant. But I think he sells himself short. You know, that passage I was talking about with the piccolos and the horn and the celeste and the way the saxophone and the trombone solo. I mean, the, the colors that he creates. And, you know, you give a mediocre composer these themes and tell them to write a 15-minute crescendo, you're going to have half the hall walk out and the other half fall asleep. But Ravel's brilliance, and it's not just the way he orchestrates the melodies, it's also the way he orchestrates the accompaniment. So it just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And so, I, yeah, I think he, out of, out of being insulted that this was so popular, kind of sold the piece short. I think so, too. It's almost like he's saying, I've got this music, I'll play it for you. But you don't have to like it. In fact, maybe you should not even like this. You know, a painter yeah. puts a dot on a canvas and everyone loves it. And they keep saying, don't like this. Please don't like this. But of course, we love it. Yeah, exactly. So how did this piece come about? Ravel did not just sit down and write this out of the blue. It was actually a commission for a ballet of dancer Ida Rubinstein in 1928 for her troupe. And it was going to be originally an orchestration arrangement of Isaac Albany's piano piece, a collection of works, Iberia. And then Ravel learned that someone else had actually already done that and wanting to do something different, thought, well, I'll arrange some of my own piano music for orchestra, changed his mind again, and eventually wrote this piece on an old dance form, the Bolero, which was already well out of style at this point in 1928 when Ravel wrote this. And a bolero was, before this, a moderately slow Spanish dance in 3-4, so three beats in a measure, and it was very popular in the late and 18th century and early 19th century, so already well out of fashion. And Ravel takes this and writes this over a few months, and it has its premiere in Paris in November of 1928, very well received, I think, 
but then the American premiere in 1929 with Toscanini in the New York Philharmonic. I think that one was a huge success, wasn't it? There was all kinds of uh, drama at that premiere as well. Yeah, I mean, this is this is where the piece took on so much of a legend of of its of its sensuality and of its of that build up and of the controversy over whether it was a piece of classical music at all. I mean, people some people said, you know, this is just. This is just child's play. Like this is not something of you know. This is not worthy of a great composer like Ravel. And then other people were saying, you know, this is Ravel's greatest work. Which I think those two extremes don't. You know, I don't think this is Ravel's greatest work, but it certainly has it, it has a power of its own to to polarize people and to to give a very different reactions depending on how they perceive of the piece. And it was at this premiere the American premiere with Toscanini, apparently he took it too fast. And Ravel oh, was uh, right. quite upset with this. And there was like an argument backstage. He's saying, you've, you know, you've ruined it. You're playing it too fast. Toscanini's saying something like, it's the only way to save it. What are you talking about? Um, well, there you go. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'd forgotten that story. And I think that really gives you an idea of maybe Ravel was protesting a bit too much when he said, uh, you know, this is the themes are impersonal and it's not simple and straightforward. He clearly had an idea for what it should sound like. And Toscanini, I think, didn't really get it and wanted, you know, as Toscanini often did, tried to take a, a little bit of a faster tempo. And the fact that Ravel felt so strongly about it, I think it's a pretty clear indication that he did think a little bit more of it than he than he let on. I think you're right. And actually, in the premiere in Paris, there was a little um, note attached into the program, which I don't think Ravel had any part of, but it said that a description of the ballet was Inside a tavern in Spain, people dance beneath the brass lamp hung from the ceiling. In response to the cheers to join in, the female dancer has leapt onto the long table and her steps become more and more animated. That's an interesting description. Actually, I did not even I wasn't even aware of that description of the ballet at the performance. I'm not sure if um, that's something you knew as well. I, I wasn't aware of that either, but I think that that again just is another indication that there was there was obviously a sensual aspect to this piece that was going to be controversial in 1928-1929. And I, I was reminded while you were reading that of this amazing performance by the dancer Sylvie Guillem of, of her own choreography to, to Bolero, um, where she's um, on a platform, a raised platform, surrounded by men. And she's sort of dancing and there's a sort of this real like give and take and, and her she she is this has a kind of power to her dancing that's really remarkable to see. I think there's performances of that on YouTube. If if your listeners want to check that out, it's it's an incredible performance. Okay, I'll definitely look out for that and also try to put videos of that on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And we're going to get into all of the music right after this. Classical Breakdown is made possible by WETA Classical. Listen to the music anytime, day or night at wetaclassical.org or on the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. Okay, looking at the music now, this is also really interesting to look at for Ravel's Bolero in that usually in a symphony, you know, there's parts for all the instruments and they're all pretty much unique to their part. But in this, there's only really three different parts happening on stage. We have this snare drum playing this rhythm that starts off in the opening, and it's an ostinato, we call that, because it's a repeating pattern. And other instruments join in with that ostinato rhythm on the snare drum. We also have a second part, which is the melody, of course, that we're hearing over and over again. And then there's this 
third part that is just the quarter note or sometimes eighth note line that's a very very subtle beat underneath in fact the piece opens with that snare drum but also very very light pits right in the viola and cello it's almost imperceptible i think in some recordings that light pizzicato trying to keep the beat along with the snare drum yeah, I think it, it almost it should start as softly as the snare drum player can possibly play it. And because it, it it really gives you the impression that that this dance is approaching from a distance. Approaching from a distance, okay. So it's there's multiple ways to look at it from it's a large crescendo or also that it's coming from a distance, almost like I think of the ox cart in pictures of an exhibition. By you Mazorsky. would think of that as a tuba player, wouldn't you? Yes, I would. That's, ex- that's exactly <laughs> where I go. And I'll say, unfortunately for this piece, the tuba part is very, very lackluster. But it's mm-hmm. very similar to Dvorak's Symphony Number no. Nine, where you play almost nothing uh, yeah. for the whole piece, but you also have the best seat. Um, yes. So you're sitting there the whole time hearing this amazing music. You're not playing for a lot of it, but you do have the best seat. Uh, that's another tuba player um, thought. so the snare drum starts this off and it's as soft as possible now as a conductor when you're starting this off as soft as possible is there anything you say or is it just kind of understood when you start this is the dynamic the dynamic we're choosing um i think you try to get a sense i mean this is a very complicated piece to rehearse because as you were talking about the tuba part the the this is not a piece that orchestras enjoy rehearsing very much because of its repetition. And for many of the parts, not just the tuba part, it's, it is remarkably repetitive and kind of just single notes that don't really contribute so much to the melody, but they, you know, they're important in the way that Ravel orchestrates them. But so you, you kind of have to get a lot done very fast when you're rehearsing this piece. And the first thing to do is if you don't like the dynamic that the snare drum player is playing, you probably want to stop right away and ask them to play softer or louder. And you also, one of the, most important choices a conductor can possibly make in this is the tempo, as the argument between Ravel and Toscanini shows you. It's very, very important to choose the right, quote-unquote, right tempo. It seems like when you have so few creative decisions to make, I mean, when you think of a symphony by Beethoven, there's so many things happening. Things are starting and stopping, new phrases, new lines, new keys, new parts of the symphony. And in this, it's just this one-track motion that you are um, following from beginning to end. And in fact, you're talking about repeating. I think the snare drum repeats 169 times. Someone must have counted that out. I read that yeah. somewhere. 169 times. <laughs> yeah, it's remarkable. And I think, you know, the the best performances, they don't all stay completely exactly the same tempo all the time. But mm-hmm. I remember I did this piece with the New York Philharmonic and I talked with all of the individual wind players about their solos. And of course, I talked to Chris Lamb, the, their amazing uh, percussionist and who was playing the snare drum part. And... In talking with them, I realized that every orchestra really has its tempo for Bolero, Mm. where it just sounds the best. And we had five performances, and I think we got it right like at three of them, where it just felt like right from the start we had this groove and that inexorable build. And the other two times, I think I had started it a little too slow. And it was really hard to get it to build that way. Um, And so it's, it's very tricky to find that tempo and to find the tempo that works for every individual orchestra because every individual orchestra has different players. That is so interesting that when you think of 
great recordings, there's, you know, this orchestra plays Beethoven a certain way, or they play Mm -hmm. Dvorak a certain way. And with this, they have their own tempo as an orchestra that just makes it work. I think there's some recordings, especially as musicians and conductors, we can hear where it doesn't feel quite settled or comfortable. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what that is? It doesn't feel just in the groove if it's too fast or too slow for an orchestra? I think it's it's sort of like a jazz term, like in the pocket. You know, Mm -hmm. there there is you know when you're on stage and you're just like, yes, this is the right tempo. And I think I had come to that to that week with the New York Philharmonic with a certain idea of the tempo that in mind. And it morphed throughout the week as I realized, oh, this player needs a little more time to get over that. This player wants to move a little bit. And so you can actually, you know, one of my dad is a wonderful violin teacher and he talked a lot about the metronome. You know, this is something that all musicians have to practice with. He said the metronome is not a fixed thing. You can play on the front of the metronome beat, or you can play on the back of the beat, or you can play right on top of the beat. Mm. And so that's the same with Bolero, where the snare drum acts as a sort of metronome. And you can kind of play around the beat, which can give a piece that has no freedom in tempo whatsoever a hell of a lot of freedom when you actually are listening to it, which is the best. It seems like it's one of those pieces where oh, this is Ravel's Bolero, it's going to be easy, we're going to rehearse it. And then for a conductor, they they step into it, realizing there are actually a lot of things that influence how this is played from, one, just knowing the score, to having your own tempo, to then being flexible enough to realize, well, as you're saying, these musicians need this, they need this, and this orchestra plays it this certain way. There's so much more to it than just, all right, let's set the metronome to a certain beat and then go for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it it is a piece that you don't rehearse much, but there are important points where a conductor can make an make an influence, which or to, you know, to maybe remind the musicians of this is actually what Ravel wrote for this version of the theme. Like it's slightly different. There's an accent here. There wasn't an accent before, you know, an an emphasis on a certain note um, or, you know, the balance of certain harmonies, you know, say, okay, how about here the clarinets come out a little bit? How about here? Let's make sure we hear the celeste. So piccolos play softly enough, you know, that kind of stuff just heightens a performance from what you said, like just set the metronome and go to really feeling like you're in this real atmosphere. So we have this rhythm and the snare drum that is acting as this metronome for us in the orchestra. We also have the melody, but it's not just one melody, right? There's two here and they're alternating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the first one is very... Um, at least at first, it's very innocent sounding mm-hmm. uh, to me. I mean, this is this is all subjective. Uh, you know, there's there's no objective truth to these things, especially because Ravel didn't really tell us what he meant with these themes. Um, but there's it's a very kind of um, it's it's you know Ravel sometimes gets called a bit detached, and I think there is a little bit of um, I'm trying to think of the word uh, reserve to the first theme. Yes. And then the second theme has a few more of those blue notes. And it, it starts to become a little bit more sensual. And you can hear it. I know some conductors hear it as a dialogue between the two parts, and some people think of it as one voice with two personalities. And then some people actually don't hear it how I do and the, with the difference, and some people hear it the, both the same. I think it's a little more fun to hear the variety of these two themes and how s- the first one is a little cool and the second one is a little warmer. I love that how you describe that. And it sounds like when we have this first one, and the second one, and they repeat. So you have the first melody that's played twice. Um, we hear it first in the flute, and then the second time it repeats on the clarinet before it goes to that blue note theme, we'll call it for now. 
in the bassoon, and then that's repeated in a clarinet before it goes back to that first um, melody. So it's repeating in these kinds of groups. It is. And, you know, there's one of the first changes that Ravel makes, not changes, but one of the first colors that Ravel creates because he has the A theme. I I just call them A and B theme. The A theme is played by a regular clarinet in B flat, which is just the sort of the, the typical clarinet sound that you hear. And then he has the B theme played by an E flat clarinet, which is a much higher pitched clarinet and it sounds a little it can be a little bit squeaky sometimes if you are familiar with Till Eulenspiegel that's an instrument that Strauss uses a lot to create some of the silly music in Till Eulenspiegel and so Ravel uses that here again to give it a little bit more tension that B theme I think the B theme always has a little more tension yes this is where we get to one of my favorite parts of this piece or my favorite ideas and that is that once you've played your solo when it basically all the principles you know are and they get your you get your your solo line, you get your moment in the sun, but you don't just play it and then go home. You have to play it, and then a lot of times you have to then play the rhythm that the snare is playing. You're joining in, making the orchestra bigger. So it's, it almost sounds like um, it's like elementary school to me. It's like you know, hey, you yeah, you just won the talent show. Now come off the stage and help us stack these chairs. Yeah, I mean, everybody's participating, and you you get this, that's how the buildup happens, and he does it so carefully. Again, I, I, I just, I don't believe him when he says it was simple and straightforward. To, to build something with this level of care and precision takes, takes, you know, a gift like Ravel had. And there is that third part, which is also quite monotonous, and just that quarter note, eighth note line that's repeating and giving a subtle beat underneath. I think we can hear how the snare is used and the measure I'm talking about playing on or or before or um, on the backside of the beat, the melody. What is there? It doesn't seem like there's much really to do for those that have this line, this just kind of even simpler metronomic role. I think that's the line that, you know, I mean, almost can make or break the piece, because if that line is played sort of just like plunk, plunk, Mm -hmm. plunk plunk it's it's it dies it can't go anywhere and you have to think of it like a great bass player in a jazz band or a great um uh, accompaniment figure you know i'm thinking of uh, the dvorak new world symphony the second movement uh, where the basses play this kind of walking bass line and if they play that sort of laid back and without any without any connection it that there's a section kind of loses its momentum and so one of the things that I always talk about when I rehearse this piece with the orchestra is like, I know it's boring. I know you're not doing anything, but you have to keep the momentum of bum, bum, one, bum, dum. So it has this kind of swing to it. And that can only come from that rhythm because that rhythm moves throughout the orchestra in a way that the snare drum thing doesn't. Yes. And that's one of the difficult roles or parts I think not everyone understands about playing instruments like the bass or for me like the tuba we often have these oompa kind of lines that it's just yeah it looks like that's all it is and you just sit there like a toad making noise but you have to be just as musical just as musically minded as if you are playing the solo with the orchestra because it's up to us in a way to set that foundation to set the momentum of the rhythm pushing forward if you you just play it straight with no character or anything yeah it just falls flat so i feel like you know oftentimes we have to also push music from the bottom not just let it as you said you can't just let it go it can make or break it absolutely 
It's quite interesting that you have these three different roles, three different parts in the orchestra, snare drum, ostinato rhythm, the instruments that join, the melody, and this moving line underneath these, um, the quarter note, eighth note. For me, the best moments are one that you mentioned right from the start, which is when we have those two piccolos with horn and celeste, and it outlines, I think, how you were talking about how precise he is, because in the orchestra, in this part, each of these players have different dynamics. So the piccolos have pianissimo in their part. The horn player, playing the same line, has mezzo forte, so it's a few dynamic levels louder. And then the celeste, they're in between. They are at piano. So he knew very precisely how he wanted these instruments in relation to each other to create this new kind of sound. Yeah, and he creates what are essentially, so you, what you hear is the horn sound, and then you hear these sort of false overtones mm-hmm. from the piccolo and the celeste, you know, rising above the horn line. And so you get this three layers that sounds like one, like, synthesizer almost. I mean, it's yeah. funny because he, you know, he would never have heard this instrument, but that's what it ends up sounding like to our modern ears. It's, it's a, again, if, if the orchestra takes the care to play it exactly the way that Ravel wrote it, it's like an otherworldly. It's so eerie, that moment. It is. Uh, I think it grabs a lot of us. But as the piece goes on, it seems like these barriers between dynamics start to break down. It becomes more homogenous in the, in the sound when you have a whole wind section playing together or all the strings joining in as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where the build is, and he, he's so careful about which instrument he chooses to use. Like, for the, one of the variations has all of the winds and the um, saxophone, and then the next variation, he adds just the first violins to the theme. And then he, you know, I'm, I'm just flipping through the score. Then the next one, he adds the second violins, you know, and it's, it's, it's this little by little. And it's the kind of thing, if you took out one of the parts, it wouldn't work. Yes. Another section for me that I think is quite unusual is really right at the end when we have the trombone section um, doing these glissandos or getting all the notes in between, which on the trombone is easy because you've got that slide, like a slide whistle when you're a kid. And I don't know of many pieces that have the entire trombone section do repeated glissandos on a piece before this by Ravel. Even after him, you don't hear this very often, and it's such a particular sound that he's bringing. Yeah, that you I don't hear in any pieces before this. Well, it's interesting that we talked about, you know, for a second, the Rite of Spring, because there are trombone glisses in that. that is, yes. I, I, I don't remember who said this. I mean, I might have come up with this myself. I don't remember. But somebody has called this the sexy Rite of Spring, the end. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's something really to that. Like, it, it is so raunchy at the end. Um, and it's no wonder some people were offended by this ending with, with, with these trombones just just the the grit in the sound as they as they oh, make yeah. those glissandi it, it's really and they, you know trombones can overpower an entire three trombones can overpower an entire orchestra easily and so to have that instrument do that again he knew exactly what he was going for and it has that extra raunch to it <laughs> i'm wondering as a conductor for you are there specific moments like that for you that just kind of i don't know make you happy 
Yeah, I mean, the f first one, actually, it's also the, the, the big trombone solo. Um, it's a, such a famous moment. It's a big excerpt in auditions for trombone players to play. I also love when the violins, the strings, who basically are playing that accompaniment the whole time until very late in the piece, and they finally, the violins, get to sing the theme. But it's influenced. It's 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 already starting to boil. It's like simmering at that point. And then as more and more of the strings come in, you know, he adds the violas, then he adds the cellos, and he starts adding more and more accents and and lines over the notes to make them emphasize them more and more. It starts to boil, and you really get this sense that that the, the whole the whole the whole hall is getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter until finally. My favorite moment of the whole piece is when that that key change to um, I think it's the E to uh, what does it go to at the end E major? Yeah, it goes to E major. Tell us about that because that is it is so um, it's so striking. It's it's I mean going from if people don't know going from C major to E major that is quite a a leap. Yeah, so I mean C major is like the basic key that has no sharps or flats in the key signature. So it, it has a what some composers would would consider kind of a, um, a neutral sound, C major. And then E major in the course of musical history was often thought of as one of the brightest keys because it has four sharps in the key signature. And uh, Beethoven talked about Immanuel Kant saying that E major was uh, the key of the stars above us. Mm. And that was for Beethoven. And, and through musical history, the, the, the characters of keys have changed. They also depend on what country you're, you're coming from. But in this moment, you go from this neutral key of C major to this bright, blazing E major. And there's no preparation for it. It just happens. Yeah. And again, it happens after about 15 minutes of C major. And it's just, again, if, it, if you can, that's the hardest thing to do. And the best performance is save that extra. It's, you're, you're already at 10, and then it goes to 11 for that moment. And it's just like it, it, the, the roof comes off the place. I'm smiling just thinking, remembering that, that moment when I've been performing it. Same here. It is, it's out of the blue. It's immediate. There's no preparation for it like you'd expect in a lot of symphonies before you go to a new section. Yeah, we nicely, cleanly end this area. But no, this is just out of the blue C major to E major and Ravel's already kind of bright in the texture and this just amplifies it even more right after this in the final seconds is also one of my favorite moments where this is why I think of it sometimes as as like a performance art kind of thing where he's building up this whole thing we're watching this very very particular very detail oriented piece and then he just throws it all away like he just burns it to the ground in the last section <laughs> in the last seconds where it just collapses into itself Absolutely, it's like a, it's like an earthquake, and all of a sudden the building just poof, just collapses. It's it's incredible. Yes, that's what makes a live experience also so much more fun. Absolutely. I'm also wondering, as a conductor, how you prepare this piece compared to something like a symphony, being that there's so many factors from, I guess, personal ones when you're talking about what an orchestra needs. How do you prepare something like this before the first rehearsal? Um, you just know the piece as best you can. You you know the order of you know who comes next. You know the balances that you want to hear. You know basically the tempo that you're envisioning, though that could adjust depending on how the, the orchestra plays. 
Um, and but I think most importantly, you have to know like what character you think this is because my my idea of the of the sexy rite of spring that is not how other conductors might think of it. Some conductors think of it much more um, stately and graceful. And so if you have an idea very strongly in your head of what you think the trajectory of the piece is, you can communicate a lot to the orchestra without having to stop at all. And then you kind of again because I was saying it's not a piece that orchestras like to rehearse very much, you kind of just choose, you pick your spots and you, you, you kind of play through the piece and maybe stop a couple of times and say, you know, make sure you do this accent here, make sure this really comes out. But this is a piece almost more than any other that I know that depends on the, the energy of a live performance to really work. It, it's, it's one of the pieces, it's just not fun to rehearse because there's no, no audience and there's no, there's no fire being created. But when the audience is there and you can tell the audience is sort of buying into it, you get that fire burning. Oh yeah. The, the atmosphere can be electric. Yeah, absolutely. One thing you said that went by really quick is you have to know which instrument comes in next because I cannot imagine any more of a heart attack you could give a musician if they're sitting on stage and all of a sudden you point to the trombone player uh, <laughs> one repeat too early or something like that. I imagine that would be um, – yeah. you'd, you'd be in pain. You, you would be. And I, I know that there was um, a very – famous conductor who did not conduct this piece with the score, but he would have a little piece of paper on the stand just with the order of who was coming in next oh, because yeah. he did, he wasn't a hundred percent sure he would remember each, each subsequent entrance. But yeah, it's the kind of piece that even if I had it memorized, I wouldn't do it from memory because of that, of that fear of possibly bringing someone in one repetition too early. Oh, not worth it. No, not worth it. <laughs> what else as a conductor is unique to this piece or is something that um, I guess you just don't do with with other pieces when you're rehearsing or performing or preparing or otherwise? Well, I learned from experience with this piece because when you look at the score, you think, what is the conductor going to do here? There's a snare drum is playing the rhythm the whole time. Like just start the snare drum player and shape it. Mm -hmm. But actually... I learned that the conductor really has a huge role to play in this piece to keep the momentum going because each soloist can have their own idea of the piece, which can maybe slow things down or can kind of break the tension. Mm -hmm. And so the conductor sort of like a steady hand on the wheel is really important in this. And so the snare drum player and the conductor can kind of work together to build it as it goes. Um, I mean, I remember with the New York Phil that Chris and I were in constant eye contact with each other. You know, I was, you know, subtly pushing him one way and then he would subtly push me another way. And we, we it was, it really felt like a duet between the two of us. And well, and we were, you know, the accompaniment in some senses was controlling where their melody would go. And that was really, really fun for both of us. That sounds like quite an experience. It's This is a piece where the, the conductor is conducting, but um, the, the percussionist on the snare drum, um, it feels like maybe they're a little bit of a conductor too then. Oh, yeah. I mean, this piece has two conductors, 100%. <laughs> so do you have a favorite recording? Is there a personal one for Josh Wallerstein that just checks all the boxes? You know, it's been a long time since I've listened to it because it is a piece that I don't really like to listen to on recordings because you're not, you know, you, when you're just sitting alone in your office or whatever, living room, it doesn't quite give you the same effect as live. Um, there is a video of Sergio Celibidake conducting it in Denmark, I think it is. Um, and it's completely not how I would personally conduct it, but it, it's so, you know, he, he was such a powerful figure as a musician i just love watching that one uh because he's just enjoying himself so much and you can tell the orchestra is really enjoying themselves 
For me, a favorite recording would be Seiji Ozawa and Boston Symphony Orchestra, the balance that Ozawa's bringing out with some of the winds. But also for um, that recording, the snare drum is um, not polite. And I mean that in a sense of, <laughs> in a lot of recordings and even performances, the snare drum, they are doing the crescendo, but it is more polite. It's not quite linear. Um, they get a bit bigger later on. But when this recording, the snare, it's, it is almost like mathematical, you know, how Ravel mm. almost wanted to just... And so at times it seems like this snare is quite loud, but it's almost unsettling in a way. And it's something very, very, um, quite performance art to it, having it like that. And it just gets bigger and bigger all the way to the end. It's just, it's a little fast, um, I think, for um, some conductors, but it's the fastest that I would like it. Um, and for me, yeah, it just checks off all those boxes. Yeah, I should get to know that recording. It's a good one. And... Like you said before, we you don't sit around and often listen to this piece. Sometimes it's years before I even think about it. And then when you put it on, when I put the headphones on, it's I have to go from start to finish. I almost can't stop. And it, it become it feels like a performance um, in, in a way. But of course, it's better to be in an actual concert hall. So where can we find you online? You have the Sticky Notes podcast. We'll put a link on the show notes page. Are you on Twitter or where else? Yeah, just on um, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I think it, it alternates between Josh Weilerstein or Joshua Weilerstein, depending on how much uh, character limit there was on the on the on that specific website. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, my podcast you can find just about everywhere. Not Spotify, unfortunately, because Spotify limits the amount of recorded music you can play. Um, but you can find it just about anywhere else you can get your podcasts. Well, thank you so much, Josh. Do you have anything more for Ravel's Bolero? It's just a piece, like, if you see it on a program and you think you're sick of it, just go, because I think about 10 minutes into it, you'll get totally carried away, and we'll remember why it is so, so great. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. There is so much more to this unusual work than you probably thought, and what a great perspective, hearing from a conductor all the details and things you need to do to pull it off. A big thanks to Joshua Wallerstein for joining me. I'll put a link to his podcast, Sticky Notes, on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org, and I'll include there a couple of performances to enjoy as well. Also, thanks to local percussionist Tim McKay for playing and recording that snare drum part we heard earlier. For episode ideas and comments, you can send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. Classical.